Coming up, what an excellent day for Ellen Burstyn. Well, howdy, folks, and welcome to Minute 11 of The Exorcist Minute, a show where we endeavor to examine, extrapolate, and excavate The Exorcist Minute by Terrifying Minute. My name is Lester Clark. And I'm Keenan Diaz. And I'm Ian Hinden. And yes, we are joined once again by our friend Ian Hinden, and we will be your holy guides on this journey through what some have called the scariest movie of all time. Okay, so our minute starts with the face of a demon. And it ends with the face of a diva. Hmm. And in this minute, we see our first new major character. But before we meet her, let's go back one last time to our man in khakis in Iraq as he faces off against this demon. Again, there's no dialogue in this scene. And I thought we wouldn't have a lot to talk about. But I do want to talk about this visual journey here. We start with a close-up on Pazuzu's face, and we zoom in even closer as all around us, the yapping and snarling of savage dogs escalates into chaotic crescendo. Uh, is this more of the uh, the polymorphia here, Ian? Uh, yeah, so this uh, this uh, scene, starting with this minute, still has the uh, music playing and the dogs barking, and it's just, it's building and building, and uh, it uh, it does a really great job of just making you feel like I wish all this chaos around me would stop. Right? It's almost like an assault. It's an assault on our senses as we're watching this thing, right? And we're zooming in on this on this uh, horribly grotesque face. Um, and then we get what I'm going to say is one of my favorite shots in the whole movie. Although I've only really looked at 10 minutes so far, I'm confident. <laughs> I am confident that this will remain one of my favorites. And that is... Uh, this shot of Father Marin standing off against this demon. And we have Marin on the right and the demon on the left. And it's done in a way so as to uh, make them look roughly the same size. Is this uh, what we call a forced perspective shot? I only know about these from Lord of the Rings movies. Oh, well, Ian has just come from a trip to Hobbiton. <laughs> what do you oh. think? <laughs> Oh, yeah, yeah. So uh, I, I recently came back. I took a trip to New Zealand and uh, we saw the Hobbiton. And uh, so, yeah, what Lester is referring to is that uh, the the house fronts, they built them so that some are very large and some are very small. And so they can put uh, different actors in front of different doors and they can seem smaller or larger, uh, whatever they need to. And uh, yeah, yeah, I got the impression that... Um, when you're looking at the the shot of the the two of these uh, figures standing off against each other, it's uh, you know, um, it's uh, it it kind of was making me think a little bit of like you know uh, it, when you're playing a video game and you have like you know Ryu versus Ken and mm -hmm. <laughs> so it's kind of split across like that. We should put in a little health bar, right, and get some <laughs> get some Street Fighter music or some Final Fantasy music in there. Yeah. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. You know, um, I think it's really useful because we have um, a bunch of video game um, critical studies or video game theory that has emerged. I don't know. When do, when do you think we started really writing about that, Ian? Like, like seriously, hmm. in the 90s or was it later than that? Oh, yeah. I, I think there's always been this big struggle because there's like a lot of folks who are like, I really want to take, you know, video games criticism seriously but then every time we did people were like no 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 i don't like what video games are saying but but around yes but but certainly not at the time of the 70s right when we're inventing video games oh we're yeah not, we're not right. thinking about theory so like i think it's actually very useful um often to apply video game theories retroactively to film um mm. you know and, and some of the things that we uh now um, use a lot in film like the idea of survival horror that's a video game theory term yes. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so, so I, I like that completely. I, I wouldn't object to that at all thinking about, oh, this composition reminds me of this that will become standard later in some other form. I think it's really useful to step outside of film sometimes. And so with the, uh, forced perspective shot, um, we're assuming that this statue is much bigger than Father Marin is actually. But the way that they're standing, it seems like the statue is a little bit uh, farther in the distance. So they they kind of cut the same figure. They're, they're well, more or less the same size. I want I want to stop for a second, though, and, and wonder mm. and question our assumption it's forced perspective. So we mm. know because of our, our research into the film that they built a fort. What was it? How tall was the actual statue, the big statue? So it, it, it's hard to tell just how tall it is. Um, we only see it for seconds at a time, and, and Max von Sydow is never standing right next to it. I'm pretty sure the statue is bigger than Max von Sydow. I only know this from uh, an anecdotal story about how it was mailed to Australia uh, right. by mistake uh, before finally making it to uh, Iraq. The story goes that that Friedkin or uh, one of his assistants in Perth, Australia, um, uh, gets a package. A package comes all the way from Burbank, and it's 15 feet high and 8 feet wide. He opens it, and the first thing he he sees is this huge fiberglass uh, penis and uh, he's out in public. So he quickly closes up the box again before any uh, paparazzi uh, can catch him uh, with this thing. Uh, then they find out it's the Pazuzu statue. And after some phone calls, it's it's back on the plane and sent to Iraq. Um, but yeah, like, it, thank so God. It's only it's only the, the penis of Pazuzu, the demon. Right. It's only the demon of the Southwest wind. I thought I was in trouble for a second. But Keenan, sorry, you you were saying something about. Um, oh, uh, so I, I wonder if we're just overthinking this a little bit because, uh, like, how they did this shot because we know that there's this actual giant statue. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I mean, if it were me, rather than doing forced perspective, I'd just build a second statue. Ah, good point. Actually, so that so, might very I'm well be sure. another statue. And uh, to that point as well. There is no Pazuzu statue like this, or there was, I mean, you know, before ISIS, uh, there was no Pazuzu statue exactly like this uh, in in the ruins. This was made specifically for the movie. There right. are other there are other Pazuzu statues. And this was actually this one was actually inspired by um, a a a real depiction of Pazuzu, but this specific statue that we're seeing in the film um, and all of its, uh, I guess, uh, iterations, if there are uh, multiple statues, is was was made specifically for uh, the film. Um, before we move on from the shot, so I like Ian's idea of it, of it looking like a, um, what do you call that, a, a fighter game? But I don't know if there's a different term for that. Mm. Yeah, 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 just yeah, a fighting like a, game. Just a fighting RPG game. or a fighting, yeah. But what it what it also reminds me of um, before Ian mentioned that was the idea of going to the astral plane because we we have um, we have a we're spending a lot of time in the minute preceding up to this um, establishing this geography again last time we were talking about whether it's actual geography or or logical geography or emotional geography we said we said we show Father Marin walking up this hill that looks like a real hill right mm-hmm. and yes. now we get to this this shot which does not look like um, it doesn't match what we have come to establish as the uh, geography of this location um, right. it doesn't match with what we would think is logically happening if we were sitting down trying to turn trying to draw it ourselves mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so um in in uh the theory of uh, musical films so I've, t- I've taught a class on like musical films mm-hmm. um you know going musical numbers go to this astral plane if you were where the the mm. literal things that are happening in the stuff where people are not singing People leave that to to be in this world that is not the real world in order to express their emotions in a heightened way. Um, mm. So when your when your dialogue isn't sufficient to express what you're feeling, you start singing. When that's not sufficient, you start dancing, and then the world sort of shifts around you, and, and you change into this other place. You know, 
And th- that's what this reminds me of. Like, like again, he might be an unreliable narrator, or this might be influenced by how we are, um, how he's perceiving the world. Um, but this is how it feels to him, right? Going back to the uh, the statue being sent off to Australia, um, <laughs> I I looked around. I couldn't find out what the cause was of why it was sent to the wrong place. Might. <laughs> Guys, my guess is that it was Pazuzu himself. He wanted to visit Australia. He wanted to go see Perth, uh, visit Kings Park and the Botanical Gardens, see the city skyline, eat some rock lobster, you know, because he's, he's a rock, you know. Um, but now, now I'm seeing in the Amazon Prime x-ray thing, it says the statue was sent to Hong Kong. So, so I got the Australia anecdote from uh, this wonderful deep dive documentary podcast called Inside the Exorcist. Mm-hmm. Um, I highly recommend uh, they go uh, that you guys go check it out. Um, they do it in this narrative style um, where it's it's almost like a dramatic retelling of uh, the story of the story. It's really really cool. Um, the Hong Kong thing I've not heard of though. So now I don't know if one of them is mistaken or if the statue was sent to both locations before making it to Iraq. <laughs> if anybody knows the actual number of Pazuzu's uh, vacation spots before he finally <laughs> arrives on set. Um, please write in and let us know. I would trust. Um, I would trust the podcast, the reporter, I would trust rather the podcast. than the Amazon thing. But yes, yes, I think if you had to go with one, I would say the podcast inside the Exorcist rather than um, <laughs> rather than um, uh, whoever wrote this X-ray thing on, on Amazon. Right, they don't um, put their name on it, whereas the guy Mark who does the inside the Exorcist one, like we know his name, so yes, you know, yes, we trust him. <laughs> but all that to say, I I really really like this shot here with the two of them perched atop the cliffs and looking at each other across this chasm with the wind blowing and the dogs snarling and the the grating violins sounding almost like insects or maybe screeching or scratching. Mm. It's very disturbing and very jarring, but also very epic. This is the beginning of the last chapter of Marin's long life. And we have a prelude to a final epic battle. Um, and even as we have that thought, the sun, remember, it was the first thing we saw in this scene, the first thing we mm-hmm. see in the movie after the title card. I'm talking about the theatrical cut, not right. the version you've never seen. Right. Um, but it's the first thing we see along with that call to prayer, the Adan. And that sun comes back and it appears between our two combatants who fade away into the redness of the sky and the blazing yellow-white light of that sun. But then that also fades. The sun and the sounds and the red desert sky gives way to the screeching of a plane. I like that from one type of screeching to another we get. Mm-hmm. Um, and the faded blue-gray of Georgetown, Washington. Yeah. So again, um, I've been thinking about this a lot since we started asking each other these questions, really. Really, What is going on here? There's no indication at all that we are in 1972. We have no idea this could be in 1922, right? There's nothing like that. Uh, So then that plane sound, which is so recognizable, helps us see that, okay, now we're in the present, or at least we're... But it feels more like we're traveling to the present, doesn't it, than than Mm. the idea that... um, that we have always been in the present. Had I not known uh, this movie a little bit better, I would almost assume like that plane sound was telling us that Marin got on a plane and went to Georgetown because it's like we're following <laughs> right. him, right? Right. Emotionally, that's what it feels like, right? That, but then um, you know that's such a common transition that we have the plane taking off or leaving, and and here it's just audio; we don't see it. Um, right. That it also feels again, you know, we're being manipulated by the film in a good way. I love mm-hmm. being mm-hmm. manipulated by films. We're being manipulated <laughs> into feeling. Like Pazuzu is also on that plane, right? This plane, this you know, well, just yeah, that he one was just sound. in Australia, now, and he's like, "Oh <laughs> shit!" Right. 
but that one sound implies all of these different things that are going on that now we're, we're moving from that. These stories are connected rather than that they're separate, mm-hmm. right? If we had just mm-hmm. done a, a straight cut without an audio transition, um, as opposed to a dissolve and mm-hmm. with that, mm-hmm. that sound, right? It feels like these are more connected because, um, Lester, have you, have you probably seen, and Ian might have seen too, like a lot of the um, reviews that are negative of mm. The Exorcist criticize uh, the Iraq sequence. Yes. Um, which is so strange to me because I mm. always remember it being, you know, on the edge of my seat, like like it really having this mystery that I'm trying to solve. But a lot of the, a lot of the reviews are like, why do they make us sit through 10 minutes or, or nine minutes or whatever it was in the original cut? Of, mm-hmm. of this nonsense that has nothing to do with anything. It's so boring. It's so dull. Not only the early critics, but even current critics. I'm oh. listening to as many Exorcist podcasts as I can. And yeah, a lot of people have, it's a very divisive uh, collection of scenes because oh, wow. I mean, people, people love it or they're just like, get this thing out of here. I mean, even I'm going to have to go back into my research, but there was, there was somebody, uh, I think it was the music designer uh, his, the first music designer before they they got the other guy who was oh, Bernard was, Herman. Yeah, he was adamant against uh, the Iraq scenes. He was right. like, "Why do we even have this?" He <laughs> I, I, don't quote me yet. I mean, we'll we'll get to it once we get to uh, <laughs> Tubular Bells. But um, uh, he, I, I think he like threw it in the trash or something like that. We'll we'll <laughs> we'll we'll get there. Um, but yeah, no, no, you're exactly right. A lot of people weren't weren't really keen on uh, on this opening. Yeah, what do you think about that, Ian? As someone who is um, is coming into this a little bit later than than us, looking at this, I mean, um, as we're ending the Iraq sequence, what what's your idea of it? Uh, well, I, I I kind of wonder if uh, all the uh, emotions that people have about wanting to get out of the Iraq scenes as quickly as possible is a testament to how well those succeed because when (laughs) when this sequence is uh transitioning to georgetown uh Mm -hmm. it's you know it's the dog snarling and it's you know chaotic music and there's like you know it it's designed to make you feel so uncomfortable that i i think a lot of folks you know they come away from that and they go wow i feel so much better now that that's all over (laughs) maybe maybe they should we just don't need that in the first place (laughs) interesting it's like oh so what didn't you like about the first part of the exorcist oh i'm sorry yeah that that made me uncomfortable i like this part when they get to georgetown and just like georgetown pops up on the wall because i just imagine like oh this uh i like the whole idea of this town named georgetown Mm -hmm. um because i think that probably solved a lot of problems for people at the time when it was founded like hey did you hear the latest from george and it's like i'm I'm sorry you're talking about the president or the town (laughs) or the king or (laughs) yeah I'm, i'm talking about the town oh well you should do something about that to make it less confusing. <laughs> and so, of course, I went to Wikipedia, which is, you know, what I want to do mm. uh, in my time of trouble. Mm. And uh, it turns out that Georgetown in Washington, D.C. is not named after George Washington. Huh? And it's uh, frustrating because uh, the more you read the history of Georgetown, like every time there's a new George that emerges, you think, oh, yeah, this is who they named the town after. And you're wrong every single time. It's like... <laughs> George Gordon built the first tobacco shop there. Oh, so it's named after George Gordon. And no, that's wrong. His friend George Beale sold a parcel of land. Oh, that's the George. Uh, nope. Some people, like you said, they think it was named after George II, who reigned in Britain at the time of the founding. But George Washington, he did hang out there sometimes. And maybe that probably inspired him like, oh, I should see about getting some places named after me sometime. He probably <laughs> thought. <laughs> Have either of you um, been to Georgetown? 
No, uh, I have not. Um, I, I I went to Washington. It was one of my favorite cities that I've ever been to, and um, I was only there for a week, and I was there for a conference, and and so I didn't get as enough time to to look around a film professor's conference. And but we did ride on this street that's parallel to the river here, um, mm. and somebody who knew. Uh, one of the, you know, it's a bus full of film professors and they're uh-huh. like, all right, everybody. All right. Um, the exorcist stairs are coming up. The exorcist stairs are coming up on the left. Uh-huh. Um, so if you, and then if you look as this, this camera is, is slowly zooming in, you can see how mm-hmm. narrow their stairs are. Yes. Basically my entire recollection is this, this giant um, stone wall in front of it, you know, and just seeing mm-hmm. that and not seeing the stairs, even though we we're looking for them because they're a mm-hmm. pencil, pencil, thin um, blur as you're driving past it. And we're definitely going to see those uh, stairs in later minutes. Right. You wouldn't notice it in this establishing shot if it was your mm-hmm. first viewing. Right. But as you know, now it's one of the most famous locations in cinema. Um, yeah. So when I rewatch this, I'm looking at those stairs specifically, even more than what we're probably supposed to be looking at, which is the, um, the house, right? The house that we're yeah that we're centering in on right Blatty, I remember in in the first part of the book, once we get to part one, chapter one, um, he talks about this like steep embankment, this drop. Um, so even then, he's kind of like setting us up for uh, something. I don't know. Oh, I, I wonder know. if he knew this location specifically because he, oh, I think, well, he knew Georgetown so well. Right, he attended uh, Georgetown University. Mm-hmm. Right, yeah. <gasps> oh my god. Hmm? Oh my god, guys, Ian Keenan. Mm-hmm. I think we figured it out. You know where there's another Georgetown in Australia. <laughs> mm, yeah, yeah. That's why Pazuzu went there first. <laughs> that's why. No, that's why he went there first. I can see. I can see his agent being like, "Okay, in this movie, you're going to terrorize a 12 year old girl in Georgetown." And Pazuzu was like, "Great, I love Australia." And nobody said anything. Friedkin was like, "Guys, guys, let's just be really nice to Pazuzu. This is his first role. He's never acted before. I'm sure he's nervous. I saw him throwing up in the bathroom earlier." <laughs> Let's just get him back on the plane, get him to Iraq, and don't say anything because also he could melt our faces if he wanted. That's a good point. But back to Georgetown uh, before we get lost again. Um, As the noise of the plane fades, we have this slow zoom across the city moving toward this red brick colonial house. And then we get a hard cut to a hand as it reaches up to turn on a lamp. And then we are introduced to Chris McNeil, played by the one and only Ellen Burstyn. Keenan, I feel like you know a little bit more about Ellen Burstyn than I do. Uh, could you enlighten our listeners? Oh, yeah. Ellen Burstyn is this great actor. As we said, she was already a known commodity when she was cast for The Exorcist. Uh, but this made her into a star and one of the most important actors of the 1970s, either male or female. Uh, it was actually, she got started rather late uh, in film. So she'd been mm. like a dancer and a model. She had done stage work, um, mm-hmm. but I had to look it up to, to check. And so her her first really big role um, was in um, her previous movie called uh, The Last Picture Show, where she gets her first Oscar nomination. And she's 39 or 38, depending, you know, when when they made that film that year. Um, so that's, that makes me feel really good. Oh, actually. yeah. <laughs> still hope for me. I'm 39 or 38, depending on when yeah. we're recording this. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So, so she got relatively uh, started relatively late. Um, so, so our impressions of her in the beginning, right, are as you know a middle aged woman. She's thirty. Mm-hmm. She's you know um, always of that that ilk. Um, right. And she's worked continuously since then, right? She's still mm-hmm. making movies today. Um, I'm trying to think of a, like her. Her last big hit would be like Inception, not Inception. No. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's the other one? Dream? No. What's the other? Not Inception. Um, Interstellar. 
Sorry. Oh, oh. So, so she's an interstellar. Yeah. So that's even later than Requiem for a Dream. But that's the movie right, that right, Ian right. and I know her from. Right. Uh-huh. And a lot of, uh-huh. a lot of people yeah. of our generation know her from. Um, yeah, that's actually interesting. Right. Because she makes Requiem for a Dream, which is this um, movie about drugs and addiction and television. Um, mm-hmm. And for a lot of people of our generation, Lester and Ian and me, mm-hmm. um, that's one of our favorite performances. And so she's mm-hmm. like she's like a really big deal to people of our generation, even though she's like, you know, 40. No, yeah. 40 years older than us. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Is that yeah. fair to say, Ian? Maybe the island person, oh. that performance is like seared in our heads forever. Oh, yeah, I think so. And it's uh, that's actually one of the first times I know it sounds kind of silly, but uh, that I thought of the idea of like, oh, wow, like that's what people mean when they say a great performance. Because, mm-hmm. you know, I've watched movies and I wasn't very critical of them. And people were like, oh, you should you should see this movie Requiem for a Dream. And in particular, you should uh, consider like what Ellen Burson is doing in this movie. And, you know, there's. Uh, this one shot where she's just like cleaning her house and the camera's like mm-hmm. panning across the whole thing and and just uh yeah she's that's moving in my... fast motion yeah and just mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> and i i mean not that that's the great performance but i just that's kind of seared in my brain but just uh it's uh, everything else she does it's you're, you're kind of like oh okay I, I see what people are talking about when they talk about great acting now and she's won what they call the acting triple crown which is an emmy uh for television a tony for the theater and an oscar for film um mm. so uh so she's one of those people in that that really select group um she will win an oscar the year after the exorcist which we'll talk about probably later as we get into some oscars talk um because a right. lot of the fans of the of the film are um are, are still salty uh, <laughs> 50 years later about some of what they perceive as the snubs of the exorcist at the Oscars. Um, mm-hmm. I certainly think that she is, um, she's quite good here, but she goes on to win the Oscar for the year after this for Martin Scorsese's uh, Alice doesn't live here anymore. Right. Yes. Um, and one of the things that I saw in my, in my research uh, that I didn't realize uh, during this is that she's going through a messy divorce in 1972, Lester. Oh, um, like right now, like at, during filming. Yes. Yeah, so she's divorcing her husband, husband, Mr. Burston, um, at this time. And so I'm a little murky on the timeline, but she, she says that, um, that he unfortunately stalked her, um, and broke into her house and and sexually, um, you know, that, well, because we could say for the exorcist that that he raped her. Um, so I'm not sure over the timeline of that. I'd love to go back and look at that. But during this time period, she is being, um, you know, uh, she's getting out in an abusive relationship. And this was at that time when, um, you know, if you're still married to someone and they rape you, that was not Mm -hmm. a crime. That's about so rape was not a crime at the time. So, <sighs> yeah. So, but I think that's really interesting to think about, you know, what's going on in her life as she's making this film that is right. um, really fraught. Yes. Yes. Um, and, oh my gosh, just the, uh, I mean, she's playing not only play. So I wanted to say, um, hang on, I'm, I'm reeling a little bit from, from that last little bit of news. <laughs> Sorry. Um, no, no. Um, uh, but I, I I just wanted to say that I think it's it's really interesting that we have this phenomenal actor playing an actor uh, in this film, and then to the the news you just gave us about her relationship with her with her ex husband, um, and this also being a role where she is uh, in the midst of a divorce. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So very, very fraught. Oh my goodness. Huh. Um, now it seems unthinkable now, uh, but Ellen Burstyn was not the first choice for this role, nor was she the second or the third. 
In fact, she wasn't even being considered. The story goes that Billy Friedkin called Audrey Hepburn, who agreed to do the movie only on the condition that they would film the whole thing in Rome where she lived. Billy then tried Anne Bancroft, uh, but she was pregnant and asked him to come back in a year. And then when he called Jane Fonda and asked if she wanted to do it, she said, quote, why would anyone want to make that exploitive supernatural piece of capitalist ripoff bullshit? <laughs> and hung up. Yeah, that makes sense for her. So so the movie that she's making in 1972 is she goes to France where her um, her husband lives and makes a Godard film called uh, Tu va bien, which is um, explicitly worker and anti-capitalist. It's worker-friendly mm. anti-capitalist, yeah. Because Jane Fonda had done, you know, a bunch of capitalist ripoff bullshit before. Um, and right. she had, she just, you know, if he, had, if he had caught her a year before, maybe she would have said yes. <laughs> right. Ah, well, almost as if it were divine intervention, Ellen Burstyn calls him, calls William Friedkin, and she asks, do you know me? And Friedkin lies and says yes, although later admits he thought he was talking to Cloris Leachman. And that is her uh, co-star from The Last Picture Show who won the Oscar. Aha, so, there we yeah. go. I am an Oscars uh, freak. Um, you know, I, I'm not always proud of that, but but I do mistake movies because of what they were competing with at the Oscars. So we've mm-hmm. talked a lot about the French Connection, and I often, mm-hmm. um, which is Billy Freakin's previous film, and right. I often um, mistake the French Connection for A Clockwork Orange or vice versa in my head, just because mm-hmm. they were nominated the same year at the Oscars. Now that is a is a crossover. Yeah. <laughs> um, so Burstyn asks. Do you believe that the universe has a plan for us? And Billy says, yes. And she says, well, the universe wants me to play Chris McNeil. You will never find an actor more perfect than me. Make a note of this. We're going to see this type of thing again. So it's actually interesting thinking about Ellen Burstyn and uh, in the research that I've just done recently, uh, Uh she was raised Catholic, which a lot of the people who made her film were raised Catholic. Um, Mm -hmm. But now she says that she is, um, she has sort of a pan-religious faith where she believes in everything. Um, She uh, studied Sufism, which is like a mystical branch of Islam. And she Uh was given uh, an Arabic spiritual name and she studied under um, Arabic or a Sufi um, religious advisor. Uh, So Mm -hmm. when she does talk about like the universe, I think that that's uh-huh. really interesting um, that, uh, you know, she says now that she listens to Jesus or Ganesha or, uh, uh-huh. or to the goddess, the, um, the Wiccan goddess. Um, mm-hmm. So she is a, I don't know what you would call that, a pan-religious uh, person. Yeah. Oh, no, that is really interesting. I think, I think uh, in our uh, upcoming minutes, we can do like a little bit more research mm-hmm. uh, research or or um folks if if anybody out there has a little bit more knowledge on this uh please please write in and and share with us we'd love to we'd love to learn about that stuff as well Mm -hmm. so then keenan ian i want you to picture this scene billy friedkin is in the office of ted ashley chairman of warner brothers Ted is practicing his putting in his office. This is the second time in this story where William Friedkin is in an office of some high-powered executive and they're behaving almost cartoonishly like a high-powered executive would behave. <laughs> like the last guy was eating and this guy is golfing. I feel like the next guy is going to be building a house of cards or making one of those little <laughs> ships in a bottle. <laughs> or maybe he's going to be like, let me show you my stable of horses. Swimming in a pile of gold. That's the <laughs> exactly. Swimming it. in a pile of gold. But no, it it reminds me a little bit like, you know, it's like Waltz in The Godfather. He's like, let me tell you something. Alan Burstyn never gets that movie. That part is perfect for her. It'll make her a big star. And a man in my position cannot afford to look ridiculous. Now here, I'm going to lie down and I want you to walk over my body. No, he seriously does this. What he really says is over my dead body. And then he proceeds to lie down on the floor and he makes William Friedkin walk over him 
<laughs> At which point he grabs his leg and he says, that's what'll happen if you cast Ellen Burstyn. I'll come back from the dead and eat you like a George Romero zombie. I'll eat your brains. <laughs> I, I now, do like that idea that he's like over my dead body. All right, now let's let's really do this because you need to understand yes. the gravity of what I mean when I say that. <laughs> oh my goodness! But despite that miracle of miracles, Ellen Burstyn is cast as Chris McNeil. So, guys, hindsight is twenty twenty, and we obviously now can't imagine anyone in this role other than Ellen Burstyn. Ashley, um, was his name? Ted Ashley. Ted Ashley's main argument against having her star was that she never played a lead in anything before. And I look back at that and I think, it's like, God, that's such a narrow-minded way of looking at things. And it just makes me think of all the times and all the stories about how uh, executives get their claws into something and mess it up for the sake of uh, money or publicity or whatever. And it makes me wonder how much of that is true and how much of that is like Hollywood sort of uh, poking fun at itself because those are the only stories you hear about executives, right? If a movie bombs, it's because of too many executive cooks in the kitchen. And if a movie is successful, it's always because they didn't listen to the executive, right? You hear stories like this where it's like they fought the executives every step of the way to get the movie they wanted and they won. And that's why we have this great movie. And it makes me think this is because we're only hearing about the times when the executives were famously wrong about something after the fact. And it's a good anecdote to talk about how wrong they were in the face of this amazing piece of art. Uh, because because otherwise, if this is a consistently true thing, you'd think that executives would learn to step away from the creative process and let the creatives take care of that part. That's a really good point, right? It's sort of a, a, a bias, like a history bias, right? We don't tell the stories where the executives are correct or anything like that. Or, or at least a little bit more like collaborative and helpful. Yeah. Or like, you know, we do have some stories in film history, like of Robert Evans, who was the head of uh, production at Paramount, who mm -hmm. um, made The Godfather, because we keep talking about The Godfather <laughs> on this podcast. Um, <laughs> and like this, so that was an executive who produced The Godfather and produced Rosemary's Baby. But the story right. about when we talk about Robert Evans is how he was still pushing against um, the leadership at Paramount above him. So even when we do have, you know, quote, like a good executive who understood the creatives, the story is still, well, you had to fight, you know, uh, tooth and nail for, for what he believed in. Can I point something out as we're going into like the visual structure of this? So, you know, this long yes. zoom into Georgetown and it doesn't start with this house centered, which, which makes sense, right? It's the house is actually a little bit to the right, but mm -hmm, as we mm -hmm. start to zoom in on it, you know, we're focusing on it, but our eye, picks up this house a little bit earlier than just when it becomes centered. And I think if right. you look at this shot, I don't know if you're able to pull this back up, mm. you all, mm. um, it's the house that has two eyes and a mouth and none of the oh rest of God. them do. So, mm. um, so again, it's not like, oh, we're trying to say this house has a face, but it's one of those tricks that we would use um, because our eyes just ra naturally gravitate towards faces again, that idea of the mm -hmm. pareidolia of um, right. our brains trying to find order within the world outside of us. So it looks like a face, and we have this tree that's blocking the window to the left that makes it two eyes and a face. Um, oh, and then we're going to have another one of those, um, or a couple of those later in the next minute. I just want to point mm. that out. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking at it right now. Now. Oh my gosh. Trickery, oh, we have manipulation. They've done that to you. You're looking where they wanted you to look. You it feels like you have free will, but you have no free will. Is this is this a is this a, an Abrahamic god or is this one of those older <laughs> gods that's using me like a chess piece? Oh my goodness. Are you a good witch or a bad witch? <laughs> oh, I'm a sandwich. Um <laughs> no. Um oh my god, we got we got pareidolia and we got polymorphia. It's like <laughs> polytheism. <laughs>
Now, we only see Chris very briefly in this minute, but from what we can see, she's got a script open and she's reading it in bed, not just reading, but taking copious notes. Yeah, I think that's uh, also, important, right? To, to It's important that we're establishing her as a thinking actor rather than like the cliche of the ditzy woman, you know, actor who is just a beauty star or something like that. Like, like we right. see not only tons and tons of notes on her script pages, but she has a legal pad open and she's making handwritten notes over there as well. Yes, yes. Um, and the book kind of goes into a little bit more detail about that, about her, I don't want to say obsessive, but just very, very um, keen attention to detail and truth as she's as she's looking at these scripts. And I really like mm. that. Yeah, there's something about, you know, why why is she an actor? Well, something, mm-hmm. you know, people often jump to, well, it's something about her not you know, being a real person, you know, um, which I think is there, but, but this specifics of this to make it so it's not a cliche is that, yes, she is that person who likes to, um, who does for a living, uh, you know, pretending to be other people and she's not accepting her own truth and all of that, but she is a, a skilled one and a smart one. It's also looking like she's maybe getting ready to have a smoke. Mm -hmm. Um, she's got that cigarette in her, in her, in her other hand. Um, but right before she does, she and we are startled by a noise. Uh, Chris looks up and we get a close shot of the doorknob, uh, then some more rattling as we get this wide shot of an elegantly furnished bedroom with what seems to be a rather small bed. I don't know. Uh, were beds just smaller back then or <laughs> are we supposed to pick up that this is a like, is this a cue that she sleeps alone or am I just seeing things? It looks small. Like my bed is bigger than that. <laughs> uh, I hadn't thought of that since you mentioned that, but of course it's a house that's being rented. So, you know, this isn't hmm. where she lives normally. So maybe it's, um, right. maybe we're meant to imply that. Ah, okay. In any case, uh, she decides to get up and investigate. Um, we can also see a photo to the left, uh, on the bedside table, very prominent picture. There's lots of pictures in this shot, but this is the only one in black and white. And it's the only one where the subject is a person. And who is that person? We will meet that person very, very soon. Well, I want to continue on with this idea of like the creepy faces that are in it. So, so now I think with the house, mm. it's not meant to be creepy. It's just sort of helping us direct our eye. Uh-huh. But if we do that test again, where we're going to take these shots, take a look at the shot of the doorknob. And we were mm. to turn it into grayscale and just see the lines. I mean, okay. the, you know, as she's scared and she looks up at the doorknob, what we would uh-huh. see is a creepy face looking at her from the shadows, and right? With I'm these two eyes right and this mouth. Ah, interesting. So as the movie starts to become more more paranoid, and she looks over and we see uh, mm-hmm. eyes looking at us, right? Or right. again, even if it's not something that we're registering on a um, uh, at the front of our minds, it, it looks, you know, as she starts to be worried that things are looking at her and right. and we have sort of this dramatic irony where we know like oh there's a demon across the world who's going to come after her um right. we start seeing more of that and then this wide shot that we cut to from the doorknob to the bed mm-hmm. i the yes. first thing i see are the two eyes on over the bed <gasps> yes the two uh the two paintings These of two the flowers paintings, yeah. yes so that's a trick that we're going to use a lot um, as we're going through the film. Um, and then depending on which version you're seeing, you might see actual faces. <laughs> ah, yes. Um, Wait, there's a version where you don't see the faces? Um, <laughs> not as much. Interesting. <laughs> the original one, you don't see as many faces. So anyways, we'll talk about that as we get to them. All right. All right. Okay. <laughs> it's, it's that those are all sort of uh, interesting because they kind of match up with uh, this uh, – uh, revelation that I had was when she's first laying on the bed and she's looking at this script. Mm-hmm. I realized that I have this like very modern sensibility because it's like, I'm like, I want to pause it and I'd be like, Hey, what is she, what is she looking at exactly? And like, what oh, her yes. notes say, you know? 
Oh, yeah, the video game theorying, right? Of the alternate mm. reality game sort of idea. Yeah, right, right, right. <laughs> and so it's like, I, I think that like a lot of modern uh, film content is made with that in mind that, you know, the audience, they can pause it whenever they want and they can mm-hmm. discuss what they're seeing on the internet and share theories with each other, right? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. and so at the time that this was made, it was probably not so easy to do that, right? Mm, and right. so, you know, a lot of the things that it, in the modern age if you saw something like that you could be like hey do you see that weird face and you could take a screenshot of it and show it to your friend and they'd be like yep i see exactly what you're talking about (laughs) yeah um but it probably kind of helped uh get some discussion going about the movie that uh, people were seeing things and they they couldn't uh you know share it the same way with other people like did you see this thing am i did i imagine that and it's like oh i didn't see that or i did see that Right. Yes, right. we do have some documentary evidence of that happening. Uh, uh, interviews of people were leaving the theaters in their first uh, time seeing it in 1973 and 74, where they were um, they had gone back to see if they had um, actually seen what they thought they saw. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And what a brilliant way to get people back in theaters, back in seats, is to you know flash something, <laughs> uh, you know, in front of their eyes and make them make them question what they actually just saw, or if they saw anything at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Ian, I tried to to read that script, um, but I could not. I could not decipher what was uh, what was there. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But I and I might be totally wrong. I might be thinking of another movie. I think I heard some kind of anecdote. I think I might have heard some anecdote about how that script is the script for the film. Oh yeah. <laughs> well, it's it's interesting because you know I you know we were also talking about like oh why Pazuzu and there's uh, everything in the film is there because of a decision that it was there mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. so you know I without having seen more of it I don't know if later in the film it's revealed like oh she's acting in this particular movie or this particular play right um, we do get well, a sense of what of what she is saying in in her big monologue later but it, we have to sort of mm-hmm. piece together what the movie is even about. Right, mm. right. They don't tell us. Um, so there's nothing that's like, yeah. um, you know, in old timey or hacky sort of ways that we would show movie making. It'd be the director mm-hmm. saying, "Now, Chris, this is the scene where you're the nurse and you're coming oh, yeah. in and telling the doctor <laughs> about that," which just isn't how movies are made, right? It's, no, it's yeah. just a stereotype yeah. of how movies are made. So this one is yeah. more accurate to the way that movies actually are made, which means that if we're coming on set, we don't know what's going on. I've right, often worked right. with like uh, crew people who were there for a day on a set or even um, I, w- I did a feature mm-hmm. once with a sound guy who didn't read. He said he never read the script because he was like, I know mm. we're supposed to, but this doesn't actually help me. <laughs> so he was trying to piece together this puzzle movie uh-huh. that we were making. And he was like, I think I have I think I finally figured out like the what's happening in this movie, like the premise of the movie, <laughs> just as we were finishing wrapping it up. Mm hmm. I love that. So the the script that it's not for like a real movie that we could look to and be like, oh, okay, this is, you know, thematically that this movie was chosen. No, I don't believe so. Um, the book goes into more detail about the the movie that she's filming currently. But uh, but yeah, we will we'll we'll see that in uh, in some upcoming minutes. Yeah, the Roger Ebert little movie glossary um, had a term for what Ian is talking about, I think, which is called mm. the Carmen coincidence. Um, you know, we have these little terms for mm. things. And he said that if someone's watching an opera in a movie, that opera is thematically relevant to what's going on in their real lives, right? Mm. <laughs> it's like, oh, I'm I'm watching this opera. And, oh, this is speaking directly to what it is. So that's typically what it is, right? That when we don't we wouldn't yeah. waste time with showing. Um, somebody watching a movie or performing in a play if that wasn't thematically relevant. Right. Um, all right, gentlemen, if we have uh, nothing else, I think that is our time. I think we got um, it. Yeah, I think we got it. Okay. So Keenan, 
Are you thinking what I'm thinking? I think I am Lester. And Ian, are you thinking what we're thinking? I think I am Lester. Until next time, folks. The, the power, power of Chloris Leachman, Leachman compels you. you.